China's expanding economic power and projections it will surpass the US as the preeminent commercial power have preoccupied people for years. But what about the idea of America as a kind of rogue state in its decline, lashing out here, lashing out there? That's not a perspective you run into every day, even in the Trump era. But as the Trump administration rolls on, more and more countries and world leaders might come to see America as the disruptor rather than the stabiliser. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Daniel Moss, the columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. America as the economic and political renegade, rather than the status quo, is a pretty new concept. But Bob Carr says it's one we should take seriously. He's a former Australian foreign minister and longtime student of US history and politics. He's the author of a new book, Run For Your Life. Bob joins us from Sydney, where he's director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Bob, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Dan and Scott, my pleasure to be talking to you. You've had a long career in government. Before serving as foreign minister, you were premier of New South Wales for 10 years, which for our American listeners is a little like being both governor of New York and California combined. I should also stress from the outset that you're no anti-American rabble-rouser. Bob, what has America traditionally meant for you? We've seen America traditionally as a great source of, of democratic values. And America's had a proud and noble, even if inconsistent or patchy record, of elevating human rights. I mean, there have been moments when I've thought I guess 20 years ago, that if there's going to be a dominant power in the world, then it's, it's good that it's America. Uh, then came two shocks to that happy, rather optimistic view of American power and might. might. One was the invasion of Iraq in the absence of any concept of international law or any consensus in the West. The invasion of the Iraq was a huge disrupting influence. The other one was America deciding under Bush that it would really vacate leadership on, uh, on climate change. That, that really got me thinking about the US. And of course, under Trump, both those concerns have uh, been magnified. Let's go back a little further, Bob. I learned about Chester A. Arthur in my 11th grade US history class. I can't recall all the details, but could you tell us what is the Chester A. Arthur Society? In the early 80s, I and a group of friends formed the Chester A. Arthur Society to have dinners and to test ourselves with a paper on some aspect of US presidential history and a series of sometimes quite challenging trivia quizzes about, about US, uh, the details of, of US presidential history. It was great fun. Do you still have the meetings, Bob, or have you ceased them in disgust? We ceased them under George W. Bush because it was difficult to celebrate 
the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln if all this pageant simply led to the disasters of the George W. Bush presidency, it'd be utterly impossible to hold them now. I mean, I've discussed with friends who, like me, have been so fond of American history, the hollowness of any, any celebration of this great feast of historiography when it all seems to lead to the degradation of a, a Trump presidency. Uh, how you can extol the uh, shrewd level-headedness of Eisenhower's two-term leadership of America, let alone Franklin Roosevelt's leadership in depression and war, when in the end, let alone Abraham Lincoln, in the end when it all devolves on a rabble-rousing populist in Donald Trump. And we, without any sense, I might add, and I think this is an important point, Dan and Scott, without any sense of an imminent recovery, none, none of us believes, no, no, no friends of America, erstwhile friends of America looking at the Trump presidency from Australia, think there's going to be a return to um, liberal internationalism. Now, China's ascendancy in this context isn't really a new idea. What are people failing to grasp about the current moment? There are two new elements in, in perceptions in Asia, and that is that the chi China's economic rise is robust and China's on a trajectory where by 2030 it'll have an economy, according to an official Australian government assessment published in our foreign policy white paper out late last year, where, where the Chinese economy will be twice the size of the US economy. And I think that's a trauma for many Americans to contemplate, no longer the world's largest economy. And the second thing has been the Trump presidency across Asia. The consensus has formed that you cannot rely on America. Its behaviour is going to be utterly unpredictable. Do you think, with regards to China, is it really the fact that China is getting that big you think is threatening America, or is it the fact that China's economy is becoming so much more sophisticated? I mean, it used to be all about sweatshops producing cheap clothes and shoes and that sort of thing. They still do a fair amount of that, and yet the economy has evolved so much that uh, you have technology powerhouses like Alibaba, Tencent that are being mentioned often in the same breath as American giants like Facebook, Amazon, and so on. All of that's true. Another way of putting it is that when Joe Biden, Joe Biden used to say, he said to me, China doesn't innovate. Well, that, that can't be said today. In view of all you've pointed to, China is a great source of innovation and in many respects has already overtaken uh, the US in innovation. And I think that makes it even harder for America to grasp. I, uh, I notice in the New York Times, there's hardly any coverage of this, of, of China's transition to a, an economy based on services and based on consumption. The Chinese have already pulled off that transition. And as I look at the pages of the New York Times every day, and it's, it's almost stubborn failure to cover what's happened in China, I think there's a, there might be a, a latent American jealousy or distaste for what China represents. And I can understand that. China's pulling off this economic transition without using the democratic means that we'd, we'd all prefer to see China using. It's, it's becoming a predominantly middle-class nation. It's becoming 
by international tests, a, a rich country, um, without permitting more political freedoms. And uh, this is this upsets the the rule book, contradicts the rule book, and uh, the expectations that all us Democrats have had. American declinism is nothing new, as you're well aware. The country has a long history of reinvention. Can it do it again? Yes, that's got to be admitted as a possibility. Another possibility is that American decline is attenuated, it stretches out. None of us knows. None of us knows what form American decline will take. But we ought to be focusing with laser-like concentration on, on the political crisis. There's a political crisis in Washington that is seeing the character of the two great political parties transformed. Just think the, the Republican Party is becoming a party opposed to immigration and opposed to trade. It's also becoming the first choice, the first preference of uh, white working class American males. The Democratic Party looks more and more like an alliance of America's rich living on the east and west coasts and its welfare dependent classes. Uh, now these, these are big shifts and the bonapartism of Trump has produced this change. And uh, that represents uh, nothing short of a political transformation in the US, but it's only one measure of the way America's changed politically. Bob, you could have a second career as a uh, political analyst on one of the American television networks, I think, uh, with what you just said. But uh, what you were just talking about reminded me of a quote that I saw that got some wide play back in 2012 when you were the foreign minister. And you said something along the lines of America was one budget deal away from restoring its global preeminence. Do you think it's going to take a lot more than one budget deal or one election even now to get back to that level? Yeah, I don't, I don't think America can return to the liberal internationalism that was once synonymous with its power and might. I just can't see that happening. I think uh, Trump is the most transformative president since LBJ or Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he's the most successful demagogue in American political history. He's a true Bonapartist, the leader above party, above faction. And uh, the fact that the Republican Party is shackled to him rather than the relationship being the other way around, him being a product of the Republican Party and of, uh, its values, all this counts greatly. And I can't see the Democrats under any of the, the candidates for presidency that are now, now imaginable beating him in 2020. I see him as a, a two-term president. Certainly that's the most likely outcome and I think America will be changed utterly by eight years of Trump and the Republican leadership that will emerge after him. Very different from the Republican leadership of the Bush era, let alone, let alone what was there before George W. Bush and before the Tea Party. How do you get from this sense of political crisis and political trauma to security threat? I think the, the political crisis in America, and that for once the term crisis is not, is not hyperbole, is of significance precisely because it's changing America's international character. America is tearing up the rules on free trade. 
the next step can only be withdrawal from the World Trade Organization because it's not adhering to the rules of the WTO. America is looking down, dusting off its allies, uh, like Canada, um, like the Europeans. America is saying alliances don't matter to us anymore. America seems to be treating a North Korea and a Russia with more respect than it's treating Germany or the United Kingdom or Canada. You can't pawn the crown of global leadership and then buy it back at the old price. If there is, in a stunning reversal, the election of a, a president who wants to abandon the key tenets of Trump's leadership, then he or she is going to find it very, very hard to rebuild alliances, to re-establish respect. Because during the eight years of Trump and during whatever follows Trump, the world, Asia, for example, um, but the Europeans as well are going to be, be making their own security arrangements. Australia might be the most rusted on and uh, the most unquestioning of allies, but I suspect even Australia would need to take account of, of what appears to be happening in Southeast Asia. That is, the 10 nations of ASEAN are each in its own way accommodating Chinese power and counting on America to be utterly unreliable. Bob, let's talk about China for a moment. I spent three years in China as an economics editor in Beijing. It is an impressive place, uh, but it also has its weaknesses that you know, might not be visible from a long distance. And there's this idea that China supports free and fair trade. They talk about it a lot, but it seems like it's something that could be challenged. But to me, at least China does talk about free and fair trade and maybe isn't the one that's trying to ratchet up the tariffs like the Trump administration is. But let me ask you, is China kind of getting a free pass right now for all of its, you know, the many kinds of violations they've been accused of in the economic arena for many years? Are those being kind of looked over just because America is being such a bad actor? Yes, I think they are getting a free pass. And I think if there's a defence to be made of Trump's aggressive behaviour on trade, it might be this, that it will greatly strengthen the hand of the reformers in China, the people who do want to see the Chinese economy open up, who do want to see a burst of economic liberalisation. It could well be that they get the upper hand and faced with the provocation and the challenges of all that Trump's doing on trade, that we see China introduce market-based reforms at a faster rate than the party and the government has promised to introduce. That would be good for the world, but it would be very good for China. Already China's got a, low, a smaller public sector in terms of the percentage of its workforce employed by government, including state-owned enterprises, than many countries in the Western world, including Australia. But imagine if in response to Trump, reformers really forge ahead in China. You talked about the ASEAN countries making their own accommodation with China. 
Why has the issue of China become so politically toxic in Australia of late? Yeah, I think um, the government of Australia tilted against China from early 2017. So it left people like me running a think tank, as I am on Australia-China relations, saying, as I've been saying very recently, we more or less had it right as an American ally running a pragmatic China relationship back under the prime ministership of Tony Abbott, the prime minister immediately before our current prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull. So we've gone through a period of shock and trauma because of the rapidity of China's rise. It's been a shock to the inherently pro-American defence and security establishment in Canberra. It's just been a shock. It's been China's economic influence in the region to our north and China's success in its uh, assertiveness in the South China Sea. I think Chinese behaviour too has contributed to the, the way uh, views of China have turned, have turned negative among the Australian leadership. China lifting the two-term limit that applied to its, its president is the biggest element in that. But while the Australian leadership has moved to a more entrenched or more flamboyant anti-China position, at least in terms of rhetoric, I mean, we haven't repeal, repealed our free trade agreement with the Chinese. Um, public opinion has moved in the opposite direction. The, the highly respected Lowy Institute, our leading foreign policy think tank, produced a poll three weeks ago that showed the percentage of Australians who see China more as economic opportunity than security threat went up in the last year. It now sits at 83%. In fact, over the last two years, I think it's increased by 5%. So Australian views of China's economic potential in terms of mass public opinion have actually strengthened. Less inclined to see China as a, a geostrategic threat than a couple of years ago, that, which to me is very interesting. Now, bigger than any clash between China and Australia would, of course, be one between China and the United States. And uh, this topic has gotten some attention lately because uh, Graham Allison, a scholar at Harvard, published a book about the Thucydides trap, which is when one great power threatens to overshadow another. Uh, conflict typically, not always, but, but typically is the result. Now, with China going down a more authoritarian path, like you mentioned, America being fundamentally reshaped by the age of Trump, how have these odds of such a conflict increased over the past year or two? Well, you can say that, that China and the US have moved into a trade war. You can say that that has got elements of a cold war, especially with America reclassifying the way it regards China and seeing China as a strategic rival instead of a partner or a competitor. That's a huge challenge for Australia. But two conservative Australian politicians in the last 20 years have actually addressed it. Alexander Downer, who was foreign minister in the Howard government, said in 2005 in respect of the prospect of a clash in the uh, Taiwan Strait, um, that ANZUS wouldn't apply that the security treaty between Australia and the United States would not drag us into such a conflict. And that made a lot of people pay attention. 
And again in 2013 or 14, the Defence Minister and the Abbott government said in respect of conflict in the East China Sea that it was most likely that the ANZUS Treaty would not apply. In other words, in a conflict between China and Japan with the US intervening on behalf of Japan, Australia's obligation to protect its ally, the US, would not apply. We, we would not be dragged into it. And he got away with that comment without any blowback uh, in Australia. So there are two signals that really stand out that even on the conservative side of Australia, it would be seen as not in our national interest to enter a conflict between China and the United States. Only straws in the wind, but I think people in the US State Department focused on game playing about these sorts of eventualities would have to take notice. That's Australia, I guess, is the most serious and rusted on American ally in the Pacific, apart from Japan, uh, giving a strong signal that in a showdown between the US and China, it would have to consult its own national interests. One of the arguments advanced for why a conflict between the US and China is unlikely is that their capital markets and their economic systems are so enmeshed. What's your perspective on that argument? Yeah, I support that argument. And there, there is now some critical assessment of Graham Allison's notion of the Thucydides trap emerging. Among other things, people pointing out that it's, it's got no historical resonance in East Asia. It's a bit of historicism because some things have happened in the past. These same things have got to happen in the same way in the future. So I'm, I'm basically optimistic. I think a clash would be disastrous for both powers. I am worried about the war party in the United States at work in Washington as advisors and commentators and think tankers moving around the circle of power. And I, and I wouldn't hesitate to make the same point about um, hawks in Beijing. But that simply puts an obligation on the rest of us to caution realism. And uh, a bit of Kissinger-style realism on the part of the, the US is needed to avoid an ideological Cold War approach to China, which sets us up for the inevitability of some conflict. Bob, let's finish on a slightly different note. Talk about some of your days in the government. One typically hears the bemoaning of the age of social media, uh, how it's become almost impossible to govern these days, you know, to properly develop policy, to sell it to uh, an increasingly distracted electorate. You led Australia's biggest state for 10 years. What do you think of that argument? Yeah, well, I come out of a, a different era. I come out of the era of um, newspapers, a time when people on buses and trains going to work were devouring newspapers, and an era when people watched the free-to-air TV news at night, and you could sell a message by appearing on the front pages and uh, on the TV capsule summaries of the day's events, and uh, throughout the day, on that wonderful medium radio, everything's been shattered, everything's been broken up. But politicians are pretty unconvincing when they complain about it. If the rules have changed, you've simply got to change with the rules. And that means, if necessary, putting the 24-hour media, the social media, to your use. 
if you've got a good record, if you're listening to the public, if you can pitch your case, the new media rules should not disadvantage you. I'd, uh, in fact, I'd enjoy the challenge of being back in it again, being able to, to take that new rule book and to make it work for me and for the government whose work I was in charge of. Or you could just take the new rules and take advantage of them as much as you possibly can and become president of the United States. You did once fantasize about being a senator, didn't you, Bob? Yeah, I did. I did. That would have been nice. I, I thought I'd lead, in my book, I, fan, I, I share a fantasy that I'd lead the six Australian states and the American Union. There would have been some disadvantages, some disadvantages uh, applying to that, of course. We would have had to live with America's gun laws. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to have you. Good, Dan. It's been my honour. Thank you, Scott. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can also find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore eco. And our guest is at Bob J. Carr, C-A-R-R. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.